hearing from God through his word, particularly through Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, at least uh, 43 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you weren't here um, last week, you might have missed out, but God willing as a church, we're going to be looking through the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible and seeing what God has to say to us as a church uh, through that book. Uh, hopefully we'll um, yeah, progress through that over the coming months, maybe approximately 12-ish sermons uh, for the book. So last week, uh, Matt preached through the first three chapters, and the message was, you can trust God. You have seen how God has interacted with us thus far through the Exodus. God has already demonstrated to you his reliability, his dependability. You can trust God. So the people are, are gathered, and they're about to enter the promised land, a land that, like ours, is awash with pagan deities, with false gods of all description. Now the question is, will the people trust God? And which one will they trust? How will the people discover and follow the only one true God? Before we start, let's pray. Mighty God, you alone are God. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone call for our obedience and worship. You are the judge who can curse. You are the saviour who can bless. You are the Holy One of Israel, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Help us to receive your revelation with understanding. Help us to accept your decrees with obedience. Guard us, Lord of hosts, from idolatry. Keep us, Lord of heaven and earth, walking in trust in our journey through this pagan world. For the first time in history, God has drawn near to a people to save them, to reveal him, himself to them, to claim them as his very own possession, his very own people, now we need to ask the question, what is it going to mean for the people, this people Israel, to be his people? What is it going to mean for this people to follow him? As Matt demonstrated in the first three chapters, these people are going to need to trust God to follow him. But when we look at the story of the Exodus so far, the outlook isn't all that promising. We must ask ourselves the question, who is God? Who is it that we are called to have faith in? Are we going to get it right the people don't have a good track record. And the notion here is that to have faith is not enough. Uh, as Tim Zilster shared a few weeks ago, faith does not exist in a vacuum. Faith must be grounded in something. There must be something that we actually place our faith in. In this sense, faith, little letter faith, is not distinctively Christian. My next-door neighbour burns incense to his ancestors. He has faith that his ancestors can save him. My co-worker says, Inshallah, God willing, in Arabic. He worships a different God, a very different God to us, and he has faith that that God will save him. The average Australian says, She'll be right, mate. They're expressing their faith in their own belief system that, that somehow the universe just intrinsically smiles on fair dinkum Aussies, and so it's going to be okay. Uh, that's a faith, but it's not biblical faith. 
Your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. And so while the first three chapters tell us to have faith, to trust God, it's also important for us to know who God is. Now, the rally cry of Deuteronomy is that Yahweh alone is God. If you haven't heard the name Yahweh before, um, so that's the, the name that God gives to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses, he's sending Moses to the Israelites, and Moses says, whom shall I say sent me? He can say God sent me, but there are lots of gods in Egypt. So God defines himself, gives himself uh, a personal name, as it were, the name uh, I am as I am, or I will be as I will be. So there are many titles that the Bible uses for God, and each has a a different emphasis, and all are useful. But Yahweh is the one that's most commonly used in Deuteronomy. It functions as a personal name, hence it emphasizes the distinction of God as opposed to the false deities. Uh, Further, meaning I am as I am, or I will be as I will be, this reminds us that God's existence is in no way dependent on us and the created order. He is who he is, and he will define himself as he is. He's not defined by us. So the question is, how will Israel stay true to Yahweh? Uh, Consider for a moment that Israel's journey through the desert both started and ends with idolatry. At the beginning, the people come to Mount Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, and they're gathered at the base. And there they build a golden calf and the people declare that this statue is the God who brought them up out of Egypt and they commit idolatry. The Exodus then finishes on the plains of Moab across the Jordan from the Promised Land. And here the people engage in idolatry as they worship the gods of the Moabites and the Midianites. Moses will not cross the river with them. From this point onwards, they're going on without Moses. And we ask ourselves the question, how are the people to ensure that they anchor their faith in the one true God? So who is God? How are you today going to ensure that you are placing your faith in the one true God, the Holy One of Israel, as opposed to the other competing ideas about God that are out there? Firstly then, the people must know the revelation of God. How? Thankfully, we see that God is not hidden to these people, but rather he has chosen to reveal himself to them. They know him, not because they were clever enough to unlock the mysteries of the universe, not because they were spiritual enough to somehow attain to a higher level of understanding, a deeper level of insight, not even, be, uh, not even because they were diligent enough to search him out, but they know God because God has graciously revealed himself to them. They've heard him and they've heard his words and decrees, and these reveal his character. And they've seen him, they've seen his wonders in Egypt and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, and these reveal his power. So God has revealed himself. All that's left for Moses to do in a sense, is to implore the people to hear what has been spoken, to see what has been shown, and to know what may be known through God's revelation. And yet we can't overstate the importance of how we receive this revelation. When God chooses to reveal himself, we must be careful to pay attention. And that stands as a warning for us as we begin our journey through the book of Deuteronomy. And so Moses begins with a listen 
to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you. Straighten up, guys. Pay attention. To some, this book is going to be a lengthy list of laws. Uh, To us, though, it is a revelation of the character of our God, and so we pay attention because the details are important. As a society, I don't think we're big on details, right? Uh, Movies are getting longer, but the scripts are getting shorter. Songs? Songs are just getting shorter, okay? Um, So as we come to the book of Deuteronomy, as we come to God's word in its entirety, we uh, we need to be careful that we're not tempted to treat it like our Spotify account. And as soon as we lose interest, we just hit the the skip button and move on to the next. Such an attitude is actually going to place us as masters over God's word rather than placing God's word as a master over us. So to be God's people, the people must know the revelation of God and they're further warned not to forget it. And indeed, as a people, they are to collectively pass that revelation from one generation to the next. Uh, This will be a theme that will be picked up elsewhere in the book of Deuteronomy. I didn't explore it today, but in retrospect, being Father's Day, it would have been interesting. Uh, But that will be another week. So firstly, they know God's revelation. But it doesn't suffice merely to receive this revelation. The second thing that we learn is that the people must honour the revelation of God. That's going to be our second point this morning. You must honour the revelation of God to be a child of God. As in verse 10, the purpose of God's self-revelation is that they might fear him. And so it reads, let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me. As uh, Paul mentioned as he started the service with Psalm 36, this this is a distinction between the people of God and the people not of God. So while Moses begins with a a listen up in verse 1 and then a don't forget in verse 9, he then calls the people to to remember Mount Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, and he says in verse 15, therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Moses well remembers what happened at Mount Horeb. Sometimes we think that Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law And then while he's up there, the people, uh, they're ignorant of the law, they don't have it, they're naive, they build a golden calf, they didn't really know any better. Uh, We forget that actually Moses receives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 where God explicitly says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. In Exodus 24, Moses comes down and he tells the people all the words of the law And the people say, yeah, we're going to obey. And then there's a covenant ceremony where Moses reads through the law and the people again affirm their commitment to live for the Lord. Then Moses takes some of the leaders up the mountain, including Aaron, um, and, and takes them back. And then Moses goes up again, this time just taking Joshua, and he's away for 40 days. So the people are still at the base of the mountain, at the base of the mountain where they've seen the cloud and the fire and the smoke They have the law with them. They have Aaron, who's had uh, a special extra revelation, so to speak. And Moses is up there 40 days. And in this short period of time, what do the people do? They ask Aaron to make an idol. They corrupt the revelation of God by making an idol. And so... Now, as Moses prepares the people to enter the promised land, he has some stern words to say about idolatry. 
And notice that right in the middle of his warnings, he reminds the people that God has not permitted him to go into the promised land. Again, it, it seems as though Moses is very concerned about the fact that, hey, last time I left you guys alone for a month, this is how badly you stuffed up. Now you're on your own. Uh, so what does he do? He preaches passionately against the dangers of idolatry, the dangers that are still pertinent and concerning for us today as Christians. God, through the giving of the law, through his intervening in their history, he has revealed himself with great clarity. But the revelation has been a formless revelation. It reads, You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. And so Moses warns them again against idolatry. How are they to avoid idolatry? They must do what they failed to do last time. They must honour the revelation God has given they must seek not only to know, but also to honour God, Yahweh their King. And as in verse 2, where, where the chapter starts, they must neither add to it nor take from it. Now, idolatry seems like a bit of a foreign concept for us. Um, apart from the golden statues in my neighbour's house, we don't see a lot of that in our context. It's possible that for Christians in the West, we can, we can go our whole life without ever really sort of encountering that, that traditional sort of idolatry that, we're, that first comes to mind. <clears throat> but idolatry does still remain as a danger for us today. Uh, firstly, I think we need to think about idolatry in, in broader categories. And firstly, there's the idolatry of substitution. Uh, we take Yahweh out of the picture and we replace him with a different God, something else that we worship. Uh, for the people of Israel, this will be a, a Baal or an Ashtoreth or a pagan uh, deity in the traditional sense, a distinctively different God. And there's been a lot of healthy Christian thought recently to consider how we are actually guilty of idolatry as Christians today when we take Yahweh out of the picture and we worship instead something from the created order, an image of sorts, whether that is a relationship or a job or prosperity, possessions, money, um, a form of idolatry where we end up erecting for ourselves an alternative God. We're not going to delve too much into that one. And, and again, this, this theme of idolatry will be picked up later in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I thought I'd limit us today to thinking about something else which actually comes out of this passage. <clears throat> I think that's a pertinent, you know, what we just said is a pertinent application. Um, but turning our eyes again to the passage, I think we need to consider idolatry that comes by corrupting the revelation of God. If we note from verses 15 and 16, it says, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. Now, whether or not Yahweh has an image, whether or not he revealed himself with a form, actually becomes irrelevant for the idolater who wishes to completely replace him with another god. The Israelite who worships a Baal or an Ashtoreth, it's pretty irrelevant whether or not Yahweh has a form. But there is a practice of idolatry that's more subtle than deliberately rejecting the God, the one true God, to follow another God, one of your choosing. And that form of idolatry involves supposedly keeping the God, but deliberately corrupting his revealed image, his revealed self, to fashion him into a form that is, that is essentially not his form, it is a form of our choosing. 
We corrupt the revelation of God and so we end up worshipping an idol. We fashion him to be how we want him to be and that is idolatry. If we consider for a moment the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32, on receiving the golden calf, the people declare that it is the God that has brought them out of Egypt. In effect, they're saying, yeah, we're still worshipping the deity that we've been following all along, the deity that brought us up out of Egypt, and that deity is this golden calf. Aaron then builds the golden calf an altar and declares a feast to it, or more precisely, a feast to Yahweh, uh, where it reads Lord all in uppercase, um, that, that's usually a translation of, of Yahweh. He is saying, yep, we still worship Yahweh, the distinctive God that revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3. And Yahweh is this golden calf. They're still trying to claim allegiance to Yahweh, but they've redefined Yahweh as he is not, but as they want him to be. And God will not be defined by us. We will be defined by God. He defines himself and he is never redefined. He is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. To be the people of God then, we first need to know the revelation of God and here we will learn who God is and then we need to honour that revelation of God. We need to honour how God has revealed himself to be. And I hear you ask, when, when do we do this? When do we corrupt the image of God? And I think actually we do it with surprising frequency. I was in my final year of med school and I was uh, sent with half a dozen others to Redcliffe Hospital for rotation. And one of them was a girl that I hadn't seen for a while. She'd been a part of our uh, Christians in Medicine little, little university group. We'd met together for Bible studies, etc. And then we hadn't seen her for a while. And I remember uh, walking to theatre with her and asking, hey, what's been going on? And she said that a lot of things had changed for her in her life. Uh, it turned out to be a matter of sexual orientation, if you know what I mean. I can't remember with clarity all the details of the conversation. That I remember asking her, like, how, when, you know, what's happened to your faith? And I do remember with, with somewhat greater clarity when she turned to me and she said, I've come to see God with new eyes. And indeed, uh, she said she was still going to a, a church uh, where people likewise saw God with new eyes. And I don't want to question that they saw God with new eyes, but I will question the God that they actually saw because the God that they saw was not the God that has been revealed to us in the Bible. They no longer saw God as he had revealed himself, has revealed himself to be. They saw a God of their own making, a God that they had redefined according to how they wanted. They saw and worshipped an idol. They might still have said, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt, just as the Israelites did the golden calf. They might still have called him by the same name, just as Aaron did of the golden calf. But this, my friends, is to corrupt the revelation of God and to partake in idolatry. Some of you are probably nodding and you're saying, I agree, and that's good. But now the question is, Perhaps we don't redefine God in this way, and I hope we don't redefine God in this way. But we need to remember that we must not redefine God in any way, but we must honour the revelation that he's given to us. It's worth self-examination. How are we tempted to redefine God, to create him according to our desires? Remember, we are warned at the start of this chapter that we're not to add to 
or take from the revelation that God has given us. Over the years, the church has often been guilty of leaving behind what we know about God through the Bible and fashioning him according to our own desires and intentions. We've added to him and we've taken from him as we've pleased. For the British, God was a God of war against the French. For the French, God was a God of war against the British. Some have depicted God as a God of judgment with no mercy. More recently, some have depicted God as a God of mercy and no judgment. You might react uh, more strongly to one of those than the other, uh, but the question is, they're actually both perversions of his revelation. We need to make sure that we continue his revelation unchanged. Some have sought to reinvent God as a socialist. Some have sought to reinvent God as a capitalist. I think that both of them need to learn to define God by his self-revelation, not by their political preferences. Some have tried to fashion God as very exclusive. He's the God of a single denomination or even the God of a single church. Some have sought to redefine God in very permissive ways. He is both the God of the Christians and the Muslims alike and, and perhaps everyone of the planet, whatever they worship. But that doesn't accord with the revelation of God we have through the Bible. All of this, I'd suggest, constitutes a form of idolatry as we seek to reimagine God according to our choosing. We seek to give him an image that he hasn't given himself. When we begin to worship a God that no longer cares about sin, no longer judges iniquity, we've fashioned our God in the form of an idol. When we begin to worship a permissive God with disregard to biblical holiness, then we're like the people of Israel who accepted the golden calf, and as we read, they got up to indulge in revelry. When supposedly Christian books and songs attempt to give God a pronoun that he never uses of himself, we're not worshipping God, we're worshipping an idol, and we've become idolaters at that point. As Christians, we must exercise constant caution to ensure that we envisage God as he has revealed himself to be. He has given us, he has privileged us with this revelation, and we need to honour that. Thirdly then, to be God's people, we must heed his call to obedience. We must obey the revelation of God. God calls for our obedience. We need to make no mistake about that. Uh, obedience here in Deuteronomy goes hand in hand with blessing and rebellion goes hand in hand with wrath. Some Christians can, can get their backs up a little bit at this and, and push back a little and they say, are you calling us to obey something? Like, isn't that legalism? Uh, I'd answer no, that's obedience. Uh, in the Bible, legalism is not obedience, but rather it's to pursue our justification through obedience. Our justification only ever comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. But obedience itself is not condemned. It's actually commanded in the Bible. In today's passage, as indeed in Deuteronomy as a whole, obedience is going to be a recurring theme. Obedience to God's command is seen as both key to their enjoyment of the land, but also indeed to their very lives and to their continuation in the promised land. With respect to God's statutes and rules, Moses says, do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. And in case the people think that he's exaggerating with all this talk about obedience and life and death consequences and, hey, this is pretty heavy, man, is this all metaphorical? No, he reminds them of Baal Peor. 
For them, this is actually very recent history. This is still painful history. This is a lesson that they cannot deny. As the Israelites conclude their desert wanderings, as we mentioned, they settle on the plains of Moab, just across from Jericho. There, Balak, king of Moab, is afraid of this great multitude, so he calls Balaam, a prophet of Yahweh, a prophet who we don't know much about, but he's coming all the way from Mesopotamia. And Balak calls him to prophesy a curse from Yahweh against his people. This people to date have only succeeded because of the blessings of God. Uh, Balak, a clever man, decides that he will get Balaam to, a, to prophesy from Yahweh a curse on them, and that will be the end of them. Balaam is taken up to a crest overlooking the plains where he can see Israel camped. And he utters, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Balak asks Balaam to prophesy a curse against Israel, but Balaam can't because God's countenance is towards Israel with blessing. Neither Balak nor Balaam can undo it. Three times Balak asks Balaam to prophesy a curse against Israel, and four times Balaam blesses Israel. And this is recorded in Numbers 23 and 24, and the blessings, they're beautiful blessings, they're brimming with hope and promise. As we finish chapter 24, though, within the next nine verses of chapter 25, 24,000 Israelites are dead. We ask ourselves, what happened there? The people broke covenant with the God who desired to bless them. They worshipped the Moabite gods. And now Yahweh himself breaks out against them in wrath. So Moses tells them, remember... Baal Peor, remember that when God's favor rests upon you, well, then even your enemies are going to be blessing you. But remember that to rebel against God, to reject your God, is to court destruction. It's to forfeit your very lives. And the question comes to us today, how are you, yourself, going to respond to the revelation of God? Are you going to choose to obey? Or are you going to choose to disobey, to rebel and to reject God? At this point, it's possible that some of you are feeling the weightiness of our position before God, our predicament as a people who, like Israel, are prone to sin. We're very familiar with the verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, You may not actually be um, familiar with this verse in in a literary sense, but you're familiar with it in a familiar sense, in an experiential sense. When he says, for all have sinned, we all nod, we all know it. But we can't complete a discussion about the blessings and curses of God without due consideration to his mercy and forgiveness. So even here, as Moses calls them to reflect on the tragedy of Baal Peor, as he warns them about the possibility, the near-foregone conclusion that their sin will take them into exile, yet we have the beautiful promises of verses 29 through to 31. It is a promise of restoration following repentance. Let me read. But from there, referring to exile, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
And when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he has sworn to them. Obedience to God is a good thing. Grace from God is an amazing thing. Here, we have one of the many many foreshadowings of the work of Christ on the cross through his death and resurrection to deliver us from our sins that we may not perish. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. In considering then the blessings that accompany obedience, it's worthwhile reading verses 6 to 8 again. Uh, Let's do that. Keep them and do them. That is the statutes and the rules. Uh, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And I think this brings us to our final point. As the people of God, we must know the revelation of God We must honour the revelation of God. We must obey the revelation of God. But finally, in doing such, we begin to reflect something of the revelation of God. In the path of obedience, we encounter blessing. And the result of that blessing is actually a witness to the world. Moses is explaining, as you do these things, people, the Gentiles round about, they're going to be looking in on you. As we listen, as we honour, as we obey, the revelation of God that he's given to us it begins to be revealed within us to those round about. Uh, it's interesting this passage finishes with the cities of refuge, which uh, is, a, is a theological theme that could be explored further. But again, it, it's one of these many occurrences where the righteousness of God within this nation is going to be revealed. When God was with Israel, Israel became a witness. And we see this throughout the biblical storyline, right from, from the beginning when they were in Egypt. And Pharaoh's advisors say, This is the finger of God. And so Rahab welcomes the spies when the Israelites get to the promised land. So Naomi follows Ruth back to Jerusalem. So the Queen of Sheba travels all the way from Arabia to meet Solomon. At times we lack the narrative detail, but we have to wonder about how Gentiles like Uriah the Hittite or Ittai the Gittite have joined themselves to the people of God. The writings of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they suggest that that the surrounding nations, Israel still drew the attention of the world and they said, and there were people that were saying, there's something different about this nation. And so as we get to the beginning of the New Testament, the coming of the Messiah, this phenomenon is still going on where Gentiles are still looking at Israel saying, there's something different. And so we have the Magi. And so we have Cornelius, so we have uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, these people who have been seeking the God of Israel, though they themselves were not of Israel. 
And all this is occurring even though uh, their distinctiveness is somewhat blunted by their shortcomings as a nation, their inability to live up to God's laws and, uh, laws and statutes. <clears throat> if you're sitting there and going, Alon, you lost me with Idai the Gittite, what's the point? The point that I'm trying to convey is that as we are conformed in obedience to God's will, we will better reveal his ways to the world. And, and that's our fourth and final point for this morning. Uh, but in tying this all together then, approximately three and a half thousand years ago, Moses stood on the plains of Moab and he preached to the Israelites then. And three and a half thousand years later, he is still preaching these words to us today through the scripture. Know the revelation of God. This, in fact, is actually your history. Uh, we mentioned when we looked at Psalm 103 a month ago that, that this biblical history is our history. And I'd just like to, to make a point that Paul makes this explicit when he writes to the Gentiles at Corinth talking about their forefathers under the cloud who passed through the sea, who were baptized into Moses, and he goes on. But the point is, spiritually, this is our lineage, this is our history. And so the message that sounded then still echoes today, and Moses' words come to us, listen up. And the message that Moses sung as a solo act back then is now actually carried by a choir as multiple biblical writers have written to us by God's hand, further revealing who God is. God has spoken. He's been progressively revealing himself, and we must pay attention. And today, it is just as important to know the revelation of God. And we need to honour the revelation of God. Going forward from the time of Moses, God continues to disclose himself. And some 1,400 years after Moses, that revelation reaches its climax with the coming of Jesus. <clears throat> with the incarnation, God is again speaking and acting. He's revealing himself in the course of history. And he does so in a way that theologians have, have referred to as the superlative revelation Fancy talk for, this is the greatest revelation so far. I want to read one or two verses from Hebrews chapter 1. This is Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. That's actually three, three verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, in a way, the revelation that we have in Christ is similar to the revelation we had at the Exodus, right? Uh, in the Exodus, God revealed himself through words and actions, but his revelation was without form. In Jesus, though he came in human form, the revelation is not a matter of his physical substance, but it is his words and his actions as he continues to reveal the Father to us. <clears throat> we have these words and actions recorded in the Bible for us. We have nothing of his physical description. The only, the only image of Jesus that we have, really, is actually the communion, and that's a symbolic image. In another way, the revelation that we have in Jesus is actually very different from the revelation given in Exodus, and we need to pay attention to that because that too is important. The earlier revelation comes through a mediator. The latter revelation is actually God himself. The world can't ignore Jesus, but it wants desperately to redefine Jesus. 
They reimagine him as a teacher or a guru or a liberationist or an activist or anything except for what the Word of God actually explicitly reveals him to be. That is the very Son of God, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. The world today is still seeking to corrupt the revelation of God, and our hearts too are tempted to corrupt the revelation. And so we need to be very careful that we do not reduce Jesus to anything less than he is revealed to be. For you have not... Uh, reading from Hebrews 12 this time. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched. This is going to be a description of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is Mount Sinai. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. With Jesus, this is the revelation that we have. With Jesus, we have the new covenant. With, at Moses, at, at Mount Sinai, we had the covenant that came through a mediator. We had a revelation that God required his people to honour. And now in Jesus, we have the superlative revelation. We have the greatest revelation. We have a wonderful covenant. And still, the implication is, honour the revelation of God. And today, it's just as important to obey the revelation of God. Uh, continuing to read from that chapter in Hebrews. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, again a reference to Sinai and, Mount, and Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And then finally... It's my prayer that, that as we seek to know and honour and obey the revelation, that that revelation might become manifest within us, that we might begin to be a community that reflects that precious revelation to others. Today, we here at Eastgate Bible Church, we can be a community that is unique from the world around us, a community whereby the Gentiles round about us still peer in and they say, there's something different there. There's a glimpse, there's a flavour, there's an aroma of the divine. And as such, as we know and obey and honour the revelation, we can be salt and light in this world, a chosen people amongst a pagan world. Let us pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for not leaving us in darkness and ignorance. Thank you for making known your rules and statutes. And thank you for how these, among the rest of the biblical witness, they reveal to us your character. Help us to pay diligent attention to your word that we might grow in our understanding of who you are. Continue 
to explain yourself to us through the words of your scripture. Help us to understand. Help us to perceive you as you truly are and never to add and never to take away and never to corrupt the glorious revelation that you've given to us. Keep us far from idolatry, O Holy One of Israel. Help us to walk in obedience to your lordship over our life and enable us to be ambassadors of your precious self-revelation to the world. Amen.